And the rest of you, if you would join me in Hebrews chapter 13. And after Eric's quick announcement, I find another reason for prayer. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we may watch, but many of us are disappointed in tonight's game's team's makeup. Not all of us, and we willingly extend the hand of love and forgiveness to them. But we are disappointed that our team failed to make the cut. How much we appreciate your word, which fails us in no way, ever. How well we are instructed, we are guided, we are exhorted, we are commanded in a variety of activities and thoughts and beliefs in your truth. I pray that you will open it again this day with the specifics that our text for this day comes to us through your grace and love. And then may we be encouraged as we consider the final verse in this context and may we be strengthened in the things that you have called us to, confident that you are victorious in all things and overcome all things, certainly things of far greater moment than football. In Christ we pray. Amen. So we pick up in chapter 13 at verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In spite of the serious threat today of recession, or of even significant financial collapse, one of the major blind spots of sin for many in the American church in our time is the love of money, verse 5. 
and unbridled materialism that can never be satisfied. This overtakes many in their desires, in their aspirations, in their lifestyles. The core sin here is not being fully and completely satisfied with Jesus Christ alone. Of course, having money is not wrong in itself. Being rich is not sin. Like a gun, money can be used for good or for evil. It's not the money. It's not the gun. It's not your possessions. It is your attitude toward it and your use of it. It's whether you grasp your things and cling to them as too important, that's what matters. And most of the sin in this category is not something that we can see, although we quickly judge others about these things. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I've been in a lot of testimony meetings. I've heard a lot of people share how they've sinned. And I've had people come to me and make confession of sin. But in all my life, I've never had one person confess the sin of covetousness to me. The love of money, the love of money is one of the most common forms of covetousness. When we focus on material things as primary, our having will never catch up with our wanting. Loving money is trusting in uncertain things rather than trusting in the living God. It is looking for security in material things instead of finding our security in our Heavenly Father. The love of money weakens our faith. It weakens our testimony. Discontent is one of man's greatest sins. Contentment is one of God's greatest blessings. Contentment is having the confidence that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Verse 6. Discontentment with what we have. Discontentment with what others have and wanting what others have instead of what we have exhibits itself very early in our lives. You have perhaps heard the toddler's sense of property law. 
If I like it, it's mine. If I take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If I say it's mine, it's mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I say I saw it first, it's mine. If you are having fun with it, it's mine. If you lay down your toy, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> the rich do have an advantage over the poor. They know, or they should know, that money cannot buy happiness and that things cannot bring happiness. Money can certainly make life more comfortable and convenient, but it cannot bring real joy. And God has not always promised us comfortable and convenient because that's not always best for us. It's not money or the lack of money that is the problem. It's the love of money. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It is often the have-nots who wrestle a good deal more with the love of money than the haves. I believe in my own life where I was lacking, I struggled more than when I was not lacking. If we love God as we should, we will have a right relationship to material things. We will have a right relationship to money. Covetousness always wants more and more. Covetousness never doesn't want more and more. But it is never satisfied. Contentment, genuine contentment, comes from God. Amen. Comes in relation to Him. It never comes from material things which can never satisfy the heart. Contentment stems from the realization that all that we have is His. And all that we have is ultimately the provision of His hand. It is not gained ultimately by the sweat of our brow or by the skill of our brain, both of which are gifts from Him. Our lives should not, they do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Luke 12, verse 15. When we have the Lord, we have all 
that we need. Material things wear out. Material things can be stolen. God never wears out. God never leaves us or forsakes us. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. And Joshua 1, verses 5 and 9. Contented Christians, and we are not always content, but contented Christians are people with godly priorities. And material things are not high on the priority list. They're not absent, but they're not high. They may have much or they may have little in the way of possessions. But either way, contented Christians are satisfied with their stuff. Those who follow Christian leaders today who espouse a philosophy of health and wealth in the Christian life are following false teaching. We talked last week about a pastor who took in the East German dictator and his wife after the fall of Berlin. The fall of the Berlin Wall, rather. Well, before that wall fell, a Christian couple ministering to believers in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain. They went across, but they were ministering there to believers, often in secret gatherings behind the Iron Curtain. They smuggled in Christian literature. They smuggled in Bibles and blankets and other needed items to be of benefit to believers there. And at a gathering of these faithful behind the Iron Curtain, this couple assured them that Christians in America were praying for them. We are happy for that, one of those believers replied. But we feel that Christians in America need more prayer than we do. Amen. We are suffering to be sure. But you in America are very comfortable and it's always harder to be a good Christian when you are comfortable. Now, Hebrews 13 and verse 5 is not an instruction to stop working and simply live with what we have or live with less and less. Scripture comprehensively, taken as a whole, Scripture lays out the importance of thrift and labor, and investment, and savings. God's Word gives us a rich economic tapestry. More should be written about what God's Word has to say about economics than is and has been written. More instruction there would be useful. But at any point, we are to be content and appreciative with what we have. The source of our contentment is not the security and comfort that we get from owning earthly things or owning enough earthly things. It's that we serve a God who takes care of us. We serve a God who will never leave us or forsake us. Again, as I emphasized 
as I started. This is a subject that we must all wrestle with in our own hearts. It is so much easier to look at others and decide that they have too much and therefore they must be lovers of money at least by comparison to me. I'm just fine. Brothers and sisters, we have no idea what is in the hearts of others. But we do know this. If we make this about having, rather, if we make this about others that we are envious of, having more than me, and therefore I have no problem with the love of money myself, we are making it a matter of how much wealth is okay. But that's not the point. The love of money is fundamentally attitudinal. It's not a matter of how much. It's not a matter of how little we possess. It's not a matter of how much or how little we possess compared to others. The poorest people can be plagued with the love of money. Sometimes the wealthiest people can be basically free of it. Whatever your friend, whatever your neighbor, whatever your coworker has, or whatever he or she does with what he or she has is not the point. As for the love of money, examine ourselves, not someone else. Contentment, real contentment with Jesus. allows us to multiply joy in all circumstances. It allows us to enjoy our own lot in life, whatever that may be, without envy toward others. Contentment in Christ allows me to experience genuine delight in the good fortune of others. Never viewing their advancement as something taken away from me. That notion is riddled throughout our culture today. Contentment in Christ drains the fuel out of my tank of competition and envy, and I can rejoice with those who rejoice. Colossians 3 and verse 5 describes greed as idolatry. Contentment is one of the purest forms of the worship of God. In his excellent book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, the Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs or Burroughs, wrote, 
You worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon or spend half an hour or an hour in prayer. You worship God more by contentment than when you come to receive a sacrament. These are only... Hear what he's saying. Hearing a sermon. Spending time in prayer. Receiving sacraments. These are only external acts of worship. But contentment is the soul's worship. Subjecting itself to God and always being pleased with what God does. So the question I have to ask myself and that you should ask yourself in regard to this verse is, am I content? Really? Am I really content with what God has given to me? No matter what others have. And will I still be content if God removes it from me? Do you truly believe, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? People can lead us into temptation, but God's help keeps us from falling. Even though we stumble, He lifts us up. People can and often do threaten our temporal peace and prosperity. But our God is able to provide what we truly need. People may shun us, but we have the love of God. People may lock us up and mistreat us, but there are no bars, there are no conditions wherein God will not come to us. Are you content and not afraid in Him? Then verse 7, look at that. Remember those who led you? who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So we're called to love. We're called to holiness. I'm reflecting back really on where we started in, here in chapter 13 and verse 1. We're called to love. We're called to holiness. We're called to contentment. And here we are assured, if I may characterize verse 7 a different way, we are assured that we are not the first to have tried this kind of life. There are those who have taught you. We have been given good examples of how a Christian is to live and what kind of life that is. Think back to a parent, to a teacher, to a pastor, to a friend who has taught you the Word of God. Learn from them. Learn from them, not primarily their personalities, which is not ours or yours, Learn from them not their ministry techniques or their particular skills and abilities or even their particular spiritual gifts. All of these are of value. I'm not saying there's nothing to learn, but primarily learn from them the result, the end, the outcome of their conduct or their way of life. 
And as you assess their lives and perhaps even their deaths, none of them being perfect, ask yourself what is to be gained from them and their example. Even the most imperfect, there are things to be gained. We don't live, after all, in the only time when the flesh is weak. When church leaders fall into sin and make grievous mistakes, disgracing themselves and scandalizing the church. The confidence of verse 7 is not in men or women of God. The confidence is in the God of men and women. God, in the course of his people's lives, and especially in the lives of those set apart for his service, reveals, does God, the glad result of walking with him in faith for the course of a lifetime. I have appreciated so much those who have gone before me and been examples for me to follow. I know that the best of human beings are human beings at best. But I see in their spiritual character, those who knew and loved the Lord, what God can do in a man or a woman over a lifetime. A lifetime of faith. What we are to imitate in our leaders, in our mentors, in those faithful ones who have preceded us, what we are to learn from them is not their worldly methods, certainly not their sins, of which they all have plenty. We all do. We don't imitate their failures, their foibles, or their falling short. We imitate their faith. study and reflect on the times in their lives when they relied on the Lord and boldly stood with and for Him. It was faith that gave their lives or gave their ministries power. It was faith that sustained them to the end. Through their example, therefore, resolve to trust yourself, trust in the Lord, firmly stand on His Word, rely completely on His matchless grace. Especially when others are falling short and times are hard. And when is that not happening? And then finally, we must add this important verse in context. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In a world of fluctuating markets, one thing is a completely safe investment, the Lord. He is not subject to inflation. He is not subject to insolvency. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The cycle of birth to death is a testament to changeableness. We are born, 
We prosper for a time, and then like flowers, we fade and die. Human personality never ceases changing. I know there are those who think that human personality is locked in. It actually never ceases changing. Some freshen with time, others sour. Most of us do a little of both. Relationships wax and relationships wane. You meet someone that you haven't seen for five years or 10 years or 15 years, and they may almost be a different person. Have you ever, have you ever gone back and, and gotten together with people you were in school with, say, in high school, many, many years later? And they're very hard to recognize. I don't mean just physically. Forests rise and stand for millennium, then fade into deserts. Rivers cut canyons and disappear. The only thing that is sure seems to be change. We appear human beings and we laugh and cry and work and play and then we are gone. Our souls long for something solid and lasting. The great truth is, verse 8, God does not change. Neither does the Holy Spirit, neither does the Son. Though our Savior ascended to heaven and dwells in heaven's splendor, He is the same. He is the same in his wrath and in his love and in his mercy and in his justice and in his compassion and his tenderness as he was when he was here on earth. He is our high priest continually interceding for us. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus in the 6th and 5th centuries B.C., insisted, quote, there is nothing permanent except change. Now you must understand, if you understand something about philosophy, that most of the philosophers in Heraclitus' time believed that reality was that which is unchanging. From a purely human perspective, Heraclitus seems to have been right. Everything changes. The subtle currents of a meandering river, the waves of an ocean, the constant motion of subatomic particles, the expansion of the universe, everything is changing all the time. In human society, there is an endless parade of fashions and fads Broadly speaking, all around the world, politics, culture, morality, philosophy, religion, all exhibit ongoing change. Sometimes the change is very slow, almost imperceptible, like the gradual change from one season to the next. Although in this one, we wonder at times, where, where did winter go? Sometimes the change is dramatic and fast. Things happen abruptly. Things happen even unexpectedly. You go into work and suddenly that day you lost your job. 
you meet a brand new person who becomes a very close friend. Or tornado, an earthquake, a flood. The constant river of changing reality reminds us that you and I are finite, we are changeable, we are mortal. Like the universe, we had a beginning, we are in the midst, and there is an end coming. God is different. His nature, His character, His plans, His purposes, His promises stand firm and unmovable like a boulder. Unlike His creatures, unlike His creation, He is unchanging. He never has a bad day. He doesn't learn things that he never knew before. He isn't fickle. He doesn't have moods. He doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't start something that he can't or he won't finish. Malachi 3 verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1 verse 17, with God there is no variation or shifting shadow. Hebrews 13 verse 8 completes verses 1 to 7. Without verse 8, everything we have seen in 1 to 7 might be lost on us. We know times change. And we often think that what was good for others might not be good for us any longer. What worked before might fail in our time. We need to do everything differently. We need to be cutting edge. This is the cardinal principle of progressivism which preaches that change is everything. So all of the rules and all of the standards and all of the anchors and all of the fundamental truths of life must change if we are to keep up with changing times. But God's person and God's reality guides us unswervingly to an opposite conclusion. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not just that he, being the second person of the Godhead, remains today as he ever was before. That's true, of course. But I think the point here in context is what this says about the passage of our lives. And that is that we may confidently embrace the pattern of the Christian life taught in God's Word, exemplified by various examples in verses 1 to 7, because the Word of God, the one who is the Word, the God who is the Word, Jesus the Christ is the same. 
so we may embrace this life as the right life and the right path because it is true, always has been true, always will be true. He is the same. So that means if you are a Christian, the commands in verses 1 to 7 and so many other commands in the Word of God that are like them are not given to us just as some ideal or some program or some bygone philosophy that served a prior generation. Rather, by this kind of life, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, by this kind of life, you are now serving and following Jesus Christ himself who was and who is and who is to come, who lives and reigns now in the heavens and by his spirit on the earth. The leader that you truly follow, the Lord you serve and trust, is none other than Christ himself, who in his word speaks to you as he did to others before you, and whose call has never been superseded or set aside. So now with the time I have left, three vital implications of verse 8 following on verses 1 to 7. First, since Jesus Christ is the same, his ministry and call are the same as they ever were. The Christ that you see in the Gospels, cleansing a leper, raising the dead, stilling the storm, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, speaking words of forgiveness to sinners. This same Christ is our own Lord, the Son of God, mighty to save. And similarly, the demands that he placed on his first disciples are fully valid today because he is still the same. If anyone, he said, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, verse 33. That call to the cross is still the same today just as Jesus Christ's offer of blessing. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 is the same. Second, the Christian life is ever the same, unchanged in all generations. The stories, the teachings in the Bible are not irrelevant to modern or postmodern man. In the face of our world's charge that what we believe in is outmoded, no longer applicable, no longer valuable, this is our reply. Jesus Christ is the same. The presumptions of progressivism are in error. Thus, we should study church history and we should read Christian biographies because others' lives of faith throughout the generations are applicable as examples for us in our time. A.W. Tozer, one of the authors I have muchly appreciated over the years, wrote, 
One of the most popular current errors is the one out of which springs most of the noisy, blustering religious activity in evangelical cir circles. It is the notion that as times change, the church must change with them. In contrast, our wisdom is that of Jeremiah 6.16. And as I say this, I note the fact that Pastor Eric talked about this about three years and three months ago, showing his wisdom and fitness for the role he is taking. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. We don't need something brand new. We need the one who always has been. Amen. Because Jesus Christ is the same now it is our turn as his people in a way that would be recognizable to those who were in him who came before us. Now it is our turn to live in this same way. Those who came before us will not accept the excuse that, well, our times were different from theirs. They must just understand of course, all times are different in some ways. In all manner of lesser ways are times different. But Jesus Christ is ever the same. And because of that, what truly matters is the same. And if you could interview, if we could interview our Christian forefathers and foremothers, they would delight in hearing and knowing that the gospel they preached is the gospel that we preach. And the life of faith that they lived is now the pattern for, for and in which we walk too. And how pleased is Jesus himself when he sees us displaying in our lives and in our churches the truth and the love and the purity to which he called his disciples from the earliest days. So we don't need new plans, new priorities, new goals, new disciplines. We need to believe and do what always has been in Christ our Lord. Amen. Third, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it is Jesus that we represent and display before our generation. We don't represent and display a tradition. We don't represent and display a philosophy of man. It is the Savior of sinners, the Son of God himself, who bears his love in our world and who calls men and women through us what a privilege to a living hope as he did in ages past. We represent him. Now, we are heartbroken and disappointed in what we have learned of Ravi Zacharias not long after he died. But that doesn't mean that all of what he wrote and the stories he told are useless. He wrote of an evangelist named Jackoff. Perhaps you read this. Jackoff preached the gospel 
in communist-held Yugoslavia. And in the days when Jakov preached this gospel in Yugoslavia, the formal church was the pawn of the cruel political regime in Yugoslavia. It was a haven for wolves in sheep's clothing. Because of that, Jakov had a hard time getting people to listen to his claims about the love of Christ. One day, an old man named Simmerman sharply reproached Jakov on account of the terrible record of those who called themselves Christians. He'd seen these people in these churches that were riddled with false teaching. He said, did Simmerman, they wear those elaborate coats and capes and crosses signifying a holy or heavenly commission. But their evil designs and lies I cannot ignore. Jackoff couldn't disagree, so he responded by offering a hypothetical. Suppose, Zimmerman, that a man stole your coat put it on, broke into a bank and robbed it. What would you say to the authorities if they came to your house and accused you of robbing the bank? Simmerman at this point just responded with angry, dismissive bluster, and Jackoff carried on his gospel work. But Jackoff came back periodically to Simmerman's village and made effort every time he came to speak to, befriend, and encourage Zimmerman and to share the love of Christ with him. And finally, finally, one day Zimmerman asked Jakov, how does one become a Christian? How many people you witness do you want them to answer that question? Are you persistent in loving them and being there for them and sharing with them? And one day... They say, how, how do you become a Christian? So he spoke to him about the simple steps of repentance of sin and trust in the saving work of Christ on the cross and believing in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And he gently pointed Simmerman to the shepherd of his soul. And Simmerman right there bent the knee to the ground and with head bowed surrendered his life to Christ. He rose to his feet, wiping his tears, and he embraced Jackoff. And he said, thank you for being in my life. And he pointed to the heavens, and he said, you wear his coat well. Amen. If we are to wear the genuine mark of Jesus Christ in our world, it will have to be in the manner of Hebrews 13, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. It will be through love and purity before the Lord, shining 
as Paul said elsewhere, shining as light in the world, holding fast the word of life, Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16. In that way, it will then be Jesus whom we truly and faithfully proclaim, displaying his mark of love and wearing his righteous robe. Let's pray. This is a holy calling from you, Lord. This is a vital and important calling from you to each of us to live for you in accordance with your word. To be sure, confessing our faults and failures, but living as your example, speaking your truth, and steering men and women boys and girls, to you, the one who is the same, the one whose truth is always true and never goes out of date, the one whose love and forgiveness never goes out of date. May we be found showing you in every way we can. In Christ we pray. Amen. Rise for the benediction. And now may you, by the power and the grace of our Lord, go and live this, not just hear it. Depart in his peace. Amen.